Welcome to Ed Talks Minnesota, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations in the Twin Cities about issues impacting young people and public education and creative strategies and opportunities to support and advocate for our youth. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, community leaders, and others who care deeply about young people, their well being, and success. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and Comcast. This Ed Talk is titled It's Complicated Students, Social Media, and Mental Health. Students spend an average of 53 hours each week on social media and other technology, more than any other activity but sleeping. While many assume technology is inherently bad for student mental health, evidence suggests that it can either boost or undermine what young people need to thrive. As more and more schoolwork goes online, both the opportunities and challenges are magnified and parents and educators need to learn how to respond. In this Ed Talk, Erin Walsh will describe the key ingredients for digital wellness and share strategies to help students thrive in a world of screens. This Ed Talk was recorded in front of a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on January 13th, 2020. This is gonna be a fun night. Um, you know, as far as my story goes, the bio's fine, but um, I never would have guessed when I was a student at South High School, so here in the Minneapolis Public Schools, that I would have found my way to this stage here tonight to talk to you about social media, media's impact on child and adolescent health. And part of the reason I might not have anticipated that is because my path to this stage um, was a little bit of a roundabout path. See, when I was a student at South High School, um, my parents started a nonprofit, and it was called the National Institute on Media and the Family. Um, and the mission of my parents' nonprofit was to maximize the benefits and minimize the harms of media's impact on child health and development. Now, I know this is not a required event here tonight. You all have elected to come here of your own free will. So as I describe my parents' life work, I see some heads nodding. That sounds like a nice mission. Um, let, you, let me remind you that I was in high school at the time when my parents started their life work. Um, so I was not on board with the mission of the National Institute on Media and the Family. We got off to a very rocky, um, or antagonistic beginning, to say the least. My relationship with their life work was arguments about why I had to do my homework before I played video games, why I had to be thinking critically about everything that I was seeing on screens. Uh, so as any good teenager does, I looked squarely into my parents' eyes and I said, I want nothing to do with you and your life, and I marched off into the world straight for the great state of Wisconsin. Really stuck it to them. Um, and of course, what happened is I started to look at the world around me. Um, and the seeds that my parents had planted at the very beginning of the digital revolution were starting to grow fast and furious all around me. Of course, now we are parenting and teaching in the heart of the digital revolution. 
I realized that I couldn't ask a meaningful set of questions about students, about children, and about families without starting to take into account the powerful role that screens were starting to have um, on my life, on my friends' lives, and in our communities. So I don't know if you identify with this, but as any good recovering adolescent does in your early 20s, I sort of sheepishly shuffled back over state lines and muttered something to my parents like, well, you were on to something, um, and I'd like to, to join you. Um, because it really shouldn't just be my parents' generation, my generation, it should be us sitting at a table with our students as well, and with kids to start asking a set of questions about how do we live well in a world dominated by screens. Because clearly the world looks a lot different than it did when I was heading off for my first day of kindergarten um, at Seward School and Minneapolis Public Schools. I have a new backpack. I'm pumped. The whole world is in front of me. Uh, Brian looks pretty excited. Dan's already deeply disillusioned about the educational process <laughs> in third grade. Um, but this is kind of the media ecology of my childhood in terms of sort of what devices we had, how we shared data, how we stored data. Um, and then you compare that, of course, to the media ecology of students and children today, and it is a world apart. More devices, more screens, more data, more stories, more powerfully presented than any other time in history. Right? Arguably one of the greatest lifestyle changes in the last generation is the sheer amount of time we spend with entertainment media, right? Data hot off the presses this fall from Common Sense Media remind us um, that teenagers today, once you put multitasking hours sort of end to end, that young people spend over seven hours every single day with entertainment media, not for school. Certainly more time than many of them spend sleeping, more time than they spend with coaches, mentors, educators, teachers, guides. Um, you know, we know now that 53% of 11-year-olds have their own iPhones, so, or their own smartphones. And so as we look at the media landscape, of course, it begs a lot of really important questions. Not the least of which, as we look at anxiety and depression levels rise in the last number of years, is social media good or bad for student mental health? I get asked this everywhere I go these days. Now, I wish here tonight, in the context of this short and neat talk, that I have a simple response to this question. But if you really dig into the data, is social media good or bad for student mental health? The answer is really yes, it depends, um, or maybe the old Facebook status update gets complicated. If we look at news headlines, it doesn't help us at all. Here's one from a couple years ago. Right, that claims depression and anxiety soar in young women in social media age. Um, and then we see within a few weeks another headline that promises the opposite. Right? Researchers say Facebook makes you as happy as getting married. So we're just reading the news like, what is going on? Um, but if you've been in the field for a long time, in some ways these divergent headlines aren't that surprising. They reflect one of the essential truths, it seems, when we start studying about media's impact on kids, which is that we're probably not going to discover whether they're good or bad. The, media, or the data continues to tell us that digital technologies aren't inherently good or bad, they're powerful. The good or bad depends upon how we design them, how we use them, 
but of the role that they play in our families, in our schools, and in our communities. So part of what we want to do is unpack that power a little bit. Just because we don't have a simple answer doesn't mean we're not starting to understand a more nuanced and helpful set of questions. Because again, if we really take seriously that the relationship between social media and mental health is complicated, then let's start asking a more complicated set of questions. Here are some of the questions that the data points out would be helpful for us to start asking our students and our kids. Um, when it comes to social media, right, how are they using it? How do they feel about it? How much and when do they use it? And finally, what could they be doing instead? And what we see is that as students and young people answer these questions in different ways, it does shape their outcomes. We do see that there is a very small but statistically significant correlation between our time with social media and increased levels of anxiety and depression. It's quite small on a population level, right? But this small, broad data set does mask some of the divergent outcomes that asking questions like this can get us closer to understanding for any individual student, how are they doing? So let me give you a couple of examples. I mean, we could spend three days together, we're not going to, um, but let's kind of give some examples of where we see these outcomes play out in really different ways. So for example, Maybe it shouldn't seem like much of a surprise, but when young people are extending offline relationships and deepening them in online spaces, this can actually be a protective factor for their mental health, right? If I'm going to soccer practice, or I'm going to Lego robotics, or I'm going to an organizing meeting after school, and I'm coming home and I'm deepening those relationships, especially since so many students tell us that logistically, it's difficult for them to get together because they're working, they're taking care of siblings, they don't have transportation. So what Berkeley's Digital Youth Project calls deepening and extending friendships is a protective factor for our mental health, right? Um, we also have a lot of research that tells us that students whose identities aren't seen or affirmed in either their homes or in their schools, having spaces online where I can be seen and known and valued is a major protective factor for my mental health. Right, so we have research on LGBTQ plus youth and how important digital spaces are when they're healthy for identity development and to sort of buffer against some of the offline stressors I might be experiencing. So we see these two examples in ways indicating how social media can actually bolster our sense of self, our identity, our ability to manage our offline stressors. And then you compare that to getting home from school, logging on, and scrolling, and scrolling, and scrolling. And this kind of hyper-passive use has a much stronger association with increased levels of anxiety and depression. Right? It's like being invited, or going to a party that I wasn't invited to, sitting in the corner, and watching everybody else have the time of their lives. So how we use social media really matters, as well as what we encounter when we get there. Right? So a recent study reminded us that 58% of youth of color, for example, experience a direct discriminatory incident online. Um, it's no surprise that if I experience acts of aggression or racism online, 
but that's strongly associated with my offline experiences of anxiety or depression. And we see this here when it comes to racism, we see it when it comes to bullying, we see it when it comes to misogyny or unwanted contact, right? But in so many ways, our socially networked lives just mirror and magnify offline challenges. And the reason this is so important for us to pay attention to is because it shapes our response. Because it turns out that if we just say, get off those phones, there's still a lot of offline dynamics that we haven't attended to. Now, the mirroring and the magnification increases the urgency. It increases the psychological impact. And it makes it ever more pressing that we take a look at these dynamics and how they play out in both offline and online spaces. So how we're on social media, what we experience and what we encounter when we're there, um, and then when we use social media. Um, we may not have the most robust data on exactly the size of the effect of, for social media and mental health, but guess what we have tons of research on? This stuff. It turns out sleep is a major way that our brains recharge, right? The part of our brain that helps us manage our big feelings, creatively problem solve and get perspective, right? Part of that suite of executive function skills. Unfortunately for us human beings, that part of our brain is not a limitless resource. It's limited, it gets tired, especially in high demand executive function environments like school. So the only ways that we recharge that part of our brain is by sleeping, exercise, mindfulness, right? And unfortunately, as we look at the data, as screen time goes up, sleep tends to go down in terms of quality and duration. And us adults are no better. Way more adults sleep with our phones on or near the bed, scrolling ourselves to sleep, but over a third of teenagers do as well. So paying attention to how to what we encounter and to when, we use social media significantly shifts the outcomes. We still have all kinds of questions. We'll have to do an talk again. Dave and I will come back. We'll revisit the research. There's all kinds of important questions, right? Does the internet cause depression and anxiety? Do children and adolescents who are living with anxiety and depression use the internet more often as a coping mechanism? Or is it a combination of both? But just because we don't understand all of the complexity yet, doesn't mean that this new set of questions doesn't point to some really important strategies. We don't want to do our whole TED talk just on questions without thinking, well, what can we actually do? Um, and I think that the data does point to some important strategies. The first one is don't assume, start by listening. Listening to our students, listening to our kids. Um, we often assume that the very ver worst version of kids is online. This is where they go to talk one another. This is where they go to bully one another, to spread rumors. Sometimes when we ask questions and we listen, we realize that the place where a young person feels most courageous, most kind, most creative is in their online world. And that actually the hallways of school are the most difficult for them. If we don't understand the way that the identity online and offline are starting to fray, it's really difficult for us to support them. So before we can address anything, we can ask a better set of questions. Instead of get off that thing, we can say, you know, open your favorite app and let's talk. 
What do you use this app for? How do you participate? Who do you know here? How does it make you feel? What kind of support do you get, right? How would you feel if this space went away? Now, if any of you are working with students or parenting kids right now, you know that this doesn't happen in one long conversation. We get up and like, I have a list of 10 questions I learned in an ed talk. I'd like you to be emotionally vulnerable and show me into your online world. Um, never gonna happen. Uh, but these are questions we can keep in mind as caring adults as we're getting clues to whether social media are helping or hurting. Now, if we start by listening and we're open to digital strengths, that doesn't mean there isn't room for boundaries. Strategy number two, go screen-free where it counts. Um, luckily, we have Dave who's gonna follow up with much more detail on how we can actually practically do this. But in the field, up until very recently, we've talked about screen time as one thing. A screen is a screen is a screen. And we've talked about minutes and hours as the primary way to manage time. Um, I don't know about you, but unless you have a very, very small child, minutes and hours gets much more difficult. And so rather than just focusing on tracking, is that text, how long was that text? Is that for school or is that for homework? Um, paying attention to the spaces where we get the most bang for our buck when it comes to mental health can be a helpful way for us to focus on what matters. So we're not going to go into each of these, but the data points to some spaces that we should be protecting, right? The first picture is just a dinner table. We joke in the social sciences that family dinners cure cancer. It has nothing to do with family dinner and everything to do with the protective power of connection. So whether it's dinner, whether it's between shifts, whether it's before school, there's a time where families and educators and students are turning towards each other. So we want to protect that. We also want to protect spaces where we recharge. Bedroom, bedtime, sleeping, a tech curfew. This is another space where kids are probably not going to turn to us and be like, thank you so much for the tech curfew. I feel so much better. Um, but these spaces become sort of essential spaces for recharge for the brain, spaces for movement. And then I'm sure this, um, this desk looks exactly like where your students and kids do homework, um, kids these days. Um, but finding places where we can focus. Chronic multitasking is very tiresome to the brain. So figuring out where we can recharge, where we can connect. And connection cannot be overstated. Strategy number three, when in doubt, connect and build bridges. The more that as we see those that rope sort of fray between online and offline identities, the more that we can step in and start weaving those together, the better the outcomes for kids. So one of the questions I get asked a lot is, what do I do if I actually see a student or if I, a friend tells me that my kid is posting things online that are worrisome? How do I respond to online displays of depression or anxiety? Well, a group of researchers asked teenagers in this country that question, and overwhelmingly they told us, I hope an adult follows up with me face to face. And here are some words you can use. They even gave us some talking points. I saw your post and wanted to check in with you. Is everything okay? Hamza mentioned you posted some pretty dark stuff on Instagram. I wanted to check in with you about it. And a parent a couple years ago who said, well, I know she's always posting stuff like that. I think she just wants attention. And I thought to myself, she probably does want attention, and let's give it to her. The last thing that we want 
is for young people to be offering sort of indicators, symptoms, or cries for help in digital space, and it's just echoing around, not in the context of caring adult relationships. And so the protective power of relationships comes up again and again and again. Research on um, students who identify as boys and gamers turns out if they know more than half of the people in their gaming world, it's a major protective factor against some of the dangers of excessive gaming, like aggression, irritability, right, and anxiety. So as Dr. Jane McGonigal says, she says, you know, the thing we can look for in our gaming students and kids is are they gaming to make their friendships better, or are they gaming to escape their friendships? And looking for the quality of those relationships becomes so important. As we wrap up, I just wanted to share this story, one of my favorite stories from the research, which I really think of research as just telling us stories about ourselves. Um, Dr. Clifford Mass did some research on heavy media multitasking tween girls nationally. And what he found at first glance um, was very disconcerting. Right? He found that heavy media multitasking tween girls, everything we wanted for them got worse. Lower self-esteem, lower feelings of social normalcy, lower feelings of social efficacy, and all the, the headlines across the country ran, right? Media ruining tween girls. And Dr. Nass, if you got a chance to talk with him before he passed a couple of years ago, said, oh, they missed the best part of my research, which was that he found this incredible antidote to the negative effects of media in these kids' lives. And it was this stuff. For every hour of face-to-face -face time he added back in, controlling for the data, he found that the outcomes started to improve, even when holding media use consistently high. And so often when we look at studies of technology in kids, we realize that the study is not really about technology. <laughs> it's about what it means to be human. And this stuff is really good for us. It's not easy, it's messy, it's complicated. For some of us, it is more anxiety producing than others. But in the words of Sherry Turkle, uh, to make our lives livable, we have to have spaces where we are fully present to each other um, and where we are not competing with the roar of the internet. So as we conclude our short little time together tonight, I think as we look at the question of is social media good or bad uh, for mental health, the answer truly is it's complicated. And so what we need to do is make sure we're continuing to ask really important, big, soaring collective questions. Like, are we designing spaces offline and online that are good for young people? Um, and then really personal questions. Are we willing to build bridges between those spaces? Um, and probably the most important question of all, which is, are we willing to sort of go towards that bridge, ask us ourselves and ask our students to put away their phones, and to walk towards each other? Um, and I think when we do that, we start planting seeds in kids' lives, and we're not quite sure how they're going to grow. So I hope this was a good tour of that big question that ends up being a bit more complicated, but it's an important one for us to keep planting and nurturing here together tonight. So thank you so much. For more information on Ed Talks, to watch Ed Talks videos, or listen to more audio podcasts, visit achievempls.org.
edtalks.